Germany's beleaguered defense minister has temporarily dropped his PhD Hi, it's Michelle. Hey, this is Ted. Welcome back to Spaßbremse. And happy May Day. This should be should be May Day by the time this is being released. So either happy the day or the day after or whenever you're getting to this if your festivities are heavy on the day itself. Yeah, I don't know how you greet someone for a happy May Day in German, but I have the feeling it's something about Solidarität. So I'm going to wish everyone a solidarisches erster Mai. <laughs> Solidarisch. Yeah. yeah. Ich auch. But yeah, we're ringing in another International Workers' Day this Sunday, a tradition since the Marxist International Socialist Congress adopted it in 1889 after the Haymarket Affair in the U.S. three years prior. So we've been celebrating the demands of workers and the proletariat every year on this day, unless, of course, you are Canadian or American, because we have a different holiday for that <laughs> at a totally unrelated time of year. Yeah, in September. But... For military parades. Um, anyways, but <laughs> if you've been celebrating the correct Workers' Day... It's been going for over 130 years, but we are still waiting on the revolution. I'm still waiting. I'm checking my watch. <laughs> I'm ready, but you know, good it's things take time, I guess. And things even seem to be getting worse for workers in a lot of ways. So we kind of want to talk about that. What explains that? We have one answer for you as part of an interview today, and that is the neoliberalization of formerly left-wing parties. Of course, we here at Spaßbremse like to focus on our very own, <laughs> I don't like saying that, but I guess, yeah, our very own German Social Democratic your, your Party. Hometown, your hometown Social Democratic <laughs> team, the, the, yeah, the local hometown boys heroes, and girls. Uh, the SPD, <laughs> which obviously started out Marxist in the late 1800s and ended up implementing the neoliberal Hatzfia reforms under Schroeder by the early 2000s. You can go back and listen to our very first episode to get the details on that. So we wanted to talk a little bit about how we got there. Yeah, exactly. And so I, um, I was really happy to have the chance to speak to Stephanie Mudge, uh, whose work I've long admired on this topic, who's a professor of sociology at the University of California at Davis. And she has one answer and one one story to um, to answer this question. What she does is highlight the role of economic expertise and especially language in transforming these formerly socialist parties, in many cases, um, into parties of, quote, third way neoliberalism, even though maybe the, the actual you know, people we would call neoliberals today, like Blair or Schroeder or Clinton, wouldn't um, have self-identified as neoliberals at the time. And it's a, it's a really fascinating argument that explains a lot about the present moment. And I think you guys will really enjoy it. And we should say, you know, she, her book is a, is a comparative perspective. And so we do talk quite a bit about other countries as well. But I think that's really important for understanding the, the changes that we experienced in Germany and around the world. Obviously, we mentioned it's, it's International Workers' Day. And so this is a, a fairly international and, and comparative perspective that we're bringing you today. 
That's right. Um, I think we should just roll the interview. Yep. On to Stephanie Mudge. Welcome, everybody, back to Spassbremse. Uh, we're joined here by a very exciting guest who I've wanted to have on the podcast for quite a while, actually. That is Stephanie Mudge, who is a professor of sociology at the University of California at Davis. Stephanie, uh, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. And so on the on the podcast, obviously, you know, it's a we're about Germany, German politics, and but to understand that sometimes you have to think think outside of just Germany itself and German German parties and German politics. And Professor Mudge here has a, a really fascinating account that places the trajectory of the German SPD. Um, within the context of broader shifts in center-left politics more generally in other countries. Um, and of course, you know, recently uh, in terms of developments in politics here, as we, we've discussed and I'm sure everyone knows, uh, to many people's surprise, there is an actual SPD chancellor, Olaf Scholz, currently in Germany since uh, elected in September of last year. And this is really reversing what I think a lot of people saw as kind of like a, a secular trend towards the decline of social democracy, or at least the declining electoral prospects of social democratic parties, particularly in Europe, you know, it's been discussed at length. But of course, I, I would always want to remind people that the death of social democracy is actually consistent with the success of parties that have social democrat in the name. And I think this book does a very excellent job of explaining why that apparent contradiction can be true. Um, the, the book, of course, is called Leftism Revisited, Western Parties from Socialism to Neoliberalism, which is out in 2018 from Harvard University Press. And I was curious, you know, what motivated you to write this book, especially at that time and, and even given your um, academic background, which we alluded to uh, off mic a little bit, but as a as a sociologist approaching this topic, um, what does that kind of perspective lend lend to it? And uh, yeah, just what what made this timely and interesting when you decided to start the research? There are a few different things. Um, one was uh, I, I think history has started moving really quickly in the last um, five or ten years. But when I started formulating the project in the early two thousands. It, it, there was just sort of this, this worry, this nagging worry um, that that politics in general, that democratic politics, were kind of going in a in a um, direction that didn't that seemed sort of less and less representative. Um, less and part of that is you know long term you know, well noted trends and declining voter turnout and party memberships and things like that. But also, I, I grew up in the D.C. area, and I was there sort of, sort of, you know, I was young in the Reagan years, and was there during the or in the area still in the transition to the Clinton presidency, and and so the, this at the time um, in the Clinton years, um, and right up until the early two thousands, there was this sort of general discussion that you got partly from the sort of international transatlantic third way, you know, progressive social democratic networks, which was about the return of social democracy and um, and how, and, and there's also this story that was sort of indigenous to the American political scene about, about the so-called emerging democratic majority. And so the arrival of the third way governments um, sort of broadly defined in Europe and in, and in the US in the form of new Democrats was sort of understood in the political and in some academic circles as this sort of return of social democracy that somehow it was back. 
but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the same thing. Like you were saying before, there's social democracy and then there's social democratic parties. And, you know, social democracy was, was more than just the organizations, right? And, you know, and the American case is very different. The trajectory of the Democratic Party is very different, but it was by that time kind of recognized and understood itself, at least its leadership understood itself as being sort of broadly parallel or aligned with European uh, social democracy. So part of it was a sort of frustration with, um, or sort of a, an inkling that that something that all was not well <laughs> in the in the house in the house of social democracy, um, despite proclamations that it was. And the other was that as a sociologist looking at a at a set of objects at the history of, of social democratic parties or political parties generally, um, the transatlantic world, where in 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 sort of the way they were kind of understood in a lot of the political science literature, which is the dominant literature on political parties for obvious reasons sort of understood as uh, parties or these sort of these sort of pinballs that get pushed around um, by other kinds of forces. And those forces are either uh, what voters want, right? They're driven by what voters want, or they're, um, they're pushed around by kind of economic forces beyond their control. You know, the rise of markets, there's nothing we can do about that, where it's globalized world, you know, and they can only adapt to that. And that was a sort of rhetoric and language of the third ways as well. And then there was the, another set of arguments in political science that you would sometimes get, which sort of separated out, well, is it the elites driving the parties or is it the voters? So, you know, these are, so these, it's kind of this, this idea of parties is, is these things are kind of pushed around by these, these usually external mechanisms. And that that was, the, that was sort of the dominant framework for thinking about social democracy um, and social democratic politics. Um, and, you know, from a sociological perspective, there's a long history in sociology of sociology, of intellectuals, sociology of culture, sociology of knowledge, which understands political ideologies as a sort of cultural form, right? And something that requires cultural institutions, knowledge producing institutions, broadly defined, which can be, which can be any kind of institution that makes claims to truth, regardless of the sort of, you know, what we think of now when we say, when we say knowledge producing, you might think in terms of credentials or how scientific it is, is it, or, you know, something like that. But in sociology, there's a long tradition of understanding cultural institutions, institutions that make institutions that make claims about truth, right? What is true and what is right and what is wrong, you know, so they're also moral institutions. So I came to this sort of this moment when social democratic parties and the new Democrats on the American side of the Atlantic were sort of understood to be ascendant, and there was this debate over, well, are they responding to what voters want? Or are they just simply adapting to what globalization requires? And it seemed to me that what you had was actually, it wasn't social democracy. You know, third way language wasn't social democratic in any recognizable way. You know, if you would put the, you know, if you put Tony Blair next to, I don't know, Keir Hardy, I'm pretty sure they wouldn't have had much to talk about, you know, and so... So, so also along with this interest in sort of culture and ideology and the sort of institutions that produce knowledge claims, there was also this, you know, what they do is they produce language and parties do a lot of things, but one of the things they do is they produce language, they produce sort of visions about the world, what is true, how should we interpret it, what, how, what, who are our constituents, what are their interests, you know, this is all a sort of this is a process that isn't self-evident, right? And it's true markets as well, right? You know, I, you know, except for people who have been to like a farmer's market, you know, markets don't kind of come into the room and tell you what their demands are. You know, you have to kind of, those are also constructions. These are things that, that we think are out there and we have access to usually through analysis. And that analysis is done by people, right? Who have yeah, perspectives yeah. and have interests and are use certain, so using certain theories and certain kinds of information. And so it seemed to me there was something that we didn't really understand 
about the trajectory of social democracy and social democratic politics in particular, because there had been, there were basically two kinds of positions. One was the position the social democratic party, the third ways took at the time, which was we're responding to what voters want, right? That's why, and the proof of that is that we, we've won, right? We've won elections and that means we're doing what voters want, right? So they had that on the other hand, they said, we're responding to what markets demand. Right, we can't. We, the international, you know, globalization, you know, and specifically, especially financial markets and bond markets, we're doing what they will allow, and we have we have to just work with that. Right, we have to we have to work with markets instead of trying to tame them or or sort of push against the deregulatory initiatives of the 1980s. And, and so it just seemed to me there was sort of room for a deeper historical perspective, and that there was something about the so-called return of the of social democracy in the third wave period that wasn't that we didn't really understand very well, because what was really happening in the background, and we can see this now, is, is that electorates were fracturing, that there was a rise of new parties, especially parties of the right. And I mean, and that comes on the heels of the 1980s, new parties, the sort of ecological parties and green parties, you know, so there had been this sort of fracturing of political fields in Western countries going on for a long time, alongside declining membership, alongside growing alienation, declining voter turnout, in the United States, it's long been the case that if there were such a thing as the independent party, it would be the, the largest party in terms of in terms of adherence, you know, relative to either of the so-called main parties. And so it just seemed to me, you know, social democracy at its birth in at the, you know, in the late 1800s, um, the turn of the 20th century, those were, you know, they were grounded in popular movements, right? They were grounded in organized labor and they were grounded in popular movements. And they were also grounded in this thing called socialism you know, which wasn't just a natural expression of how workers thought, you know, it was something that was formulated by intellectuals. A way of, a way of helping them think about the world, right? As you, right. as you say, right? It's not that uh, labor movements naturally beget socialism, but actually like socialist thought was something that could actually help organize labor, right? Um, right at the, at the start of some of the foundation of these parties, which is, mm -hmm. which is a period, um, obviously, I think we can, we can kind of take it, um, uh, like chronologically a bit and kind of get into the, the details of all these things you mentioned in terms of the importance of language and representation and these, like, these transformations of, of economic thought. Um, because I think you, you trace it, um, very interestingly. But yeah, just to, uh, just to sort of review, um, what we're, what we're talking about here, you know, um, like I said, you know, I'd like to, like to focus as much as we can on the, the German SPD. But your story is really a comparative one involving the Swedish Social Democrats, the German Social Democrats, the UK Labour Party and the US Democrats, which, as you mentioned, have um, slightly different roots, like the, the US Democrats never being explicitly socialist and the, the UK Labour Party being closely tied to the labour movement, but not um, exactly social democratic. And then I guess the, the Swedes um, and Germans being a bit more similar and the Germans especially being at like a, a leading really a leading role. I mean, the largest socialist party, um, I believe, in Europe at that time. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you, you discuss this, um, and I'll quote a bit from a, a piece you had in Phenomenal World um, about the sort of uh, how, how these parties came about. Um, and you say, three kinds of institutions were crucial drivers of the fitful, contested, imperfect construction of democratic rights and representation of the powerless between the 1850s and the 1920s. Socialist and social democratic culture, mass political parties, and labor movements. 
Where the three converged, the result was a unique historical organization, the labor-allied mass party of the socialist and social democratic left. I was wondering, could you just say a, a little bit about, you know, how how this came about, uh, maybe particularly in the in the German case, if you could, in terms of, you know, like you said, the ideology, the social base, and then, you know, the, the actual geographic core of, of some of these parties and movements? Right. Well, you know, one of the things that's that I think um, is sometimes lost in contemporary literature on on parties and especially social democratic parties is is the fact that that this was a this was a not a pre-democratic period, but a democratizing period, you know, and so and so the dilemma that would be organizers of social democratic party or so parties or socialist parties confronted was the fact that they wanted to mobilize an electorate that couldn't vote, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, and that makes it really difficult, right? And and so the 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 thing that's really striking in the history of the SPD was sort of I treat it as sort of a model case in that early period because it was a model a model case um, because you know what it did was it it what I what I argue and I think is pretty you know it's not a novel argument and is pretty clear in the sort of history of, of parties of the SPD and its and its you know its parallels in other countries is that you know, lacking an ability to mobilize people in the pursuit of office, which was the SPD was, was able to do that early on, but then the anti-socialist laws, you know, it was sort of repressed and prevented, at least in Prussia. And so it, it, invest in, it invested in culture, essentially, right? And then socialization and cultural production, and it produced, you know, calendars and weeklies, and it created, you know, clubs and, and it essentially provided education and literacy training, and it provided welfare kinds of services. And um, and so it, it, you know, lacking an ability to sort of pursue political power, it essentially socialized people into thinking about the world in a socialist or social democratic way, right? So when you associate days of the week, right, with, with social democratic language or with socialist language, or you, when you read the paper and you, you, you translate what you read in the language of class, and exploitation, then, then when you do achieve, um, when you do, when you are able to kind of push democratization and the franchise forward, then you're you're able to move into power because what you've done is you've you've built a base that's not only grounded in econ the economic conditions of your constituents, it's not only grounded in the fact that you are that you are pursuing policies, you know, that appeal to their economic interests. You've shaped the way they think. You've become, you know, what they call sort of a natural party and natural representative. Right, and part of this, I think, throughout the the book, really, like part of your your story is really sort of the, the creation evolution of of like common sense, right? And this mm -hmm. is like this is a way of of like producing like a type of common sense for at least at least part of the the population, right? And and I mean, it sort of it takes us to, to this sort of the first of these two like very large transformations of the parties that you mention of this the sort of slide right from like uh, Marxian or Marxist thought of the the socialist parties to Keynesianism and then to neoliberalism. And so you know you just described kind of the the formation of the socialist phase and now kind of moving after the First World War um, to the the evolution of this this like Keynesian revolution within the parties because you have. Um, as you mentioned, uh, interwar um, period financial crisis. And at this time, it's, it's really hard to wrap your head around from like the modern perspective. But a lot of these leftist parties were extremely uh, dogmatic about what we would consider like very like austere uh, economic orthodoxy, right? Like commitment to the gold standard, balanced budgets and so on. And so 
at this point where they're finally finding themselves in power after the First World War, say, say in Germany, for example, they feel very constrained by this like, you know, very old school conservative economic orthodoxy. And so how did that play out? And, and what did Keynesian style thinking do for center left parties? Right. So in the lead up to so so the first thing I'll say is there was no sometimes the the transition to sort of Keynesian style policy, it's closely associated with deficit spending, right? With being willing essentially, you know, during during a depression or a recession, being willing to go into debt in order to boost consumption and and you know, all of that. And that didn't happen. So so the so the German Social Democratic Party, the the European parties they traced, the, the Swedish Social Democratic Party, the German, the German Social Democrats and the British Labour Party, they um, are all sort of in power or close to power in the late 1920s and the early 1930s. And not one of them breaks with, with what I call gold standard orthodoxy, which is essentially what we now call austerity, right? So, so instead of what we associate with Keynesian style policy of deficit spending in order to boost demand and to, and also to sort of compensate and, and, and smooth out, right, the social consequences of a recession by putting a floor under unemployment, things like that. You know, the, the austerity position is, well, what you do is you balance your budget, right? And you get the economy going by, by restoring confidence, right? By restoring business confidence. And so the logic, what, the, what I'm calling, what I call gold standard orthodoxy, the same, the logic was the same. They just didn't call it austerity. The, the logic was, was, was a logic of fiscal conservatism. When things go bad, when you have a recession, then you balance your budget. And the problem is if you're a social democratic or a party, or you're regardless of the title, you're a party that claims to represent poor and working people. Then what that means is that in a recession, you're going to punish them. You're going to cut their benefits. You're going to take the, you know, you're going to take their protections away, and you're going to raise their taxes. You know, it's it's not popular, and it's very difficult to govern in a social democratic way, right? When 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 you understand yourself to only have that option in bad economic times. And none of the none of the parties I've mentioned broke with gold standard orthodoxy until after the gold standard collapsed in 1931, when Britain left the gold standard. And the only party that then makes a move toward what we would now call Keynesianism, but at the time was was an economic logic that was that was sort of homegrown um, was the Swedish case, was the Swedish Social Democrats. And what I point out was that wasn't because they were somehow not as dogmatically Marxist or committed to Marxist orthodoxy or whatever. It was because they had a changeover. They're essentially, the two most powerful people on the party died. And, and a younger generation of people took their place. One is the minister of finance and one is the prime minister. And, um, and the new minister of finance was not trained was, had sort of become a de facto economist who um, who worked with what would later become recognized as the Stockholm School, including people like Gunnar Myrdal. And so when, and his name um, was Vigfors, I don't speak Swedish, unfortunately, so I apologize for any errors in pronunciation, but, um, and he became sort of recognized as an economist, but really he was sort of a de facto economist who was, who had worked on problems of employment, of unemployment, with the sort of younger generation members of the Stockholm School in Sweden. And so when Vigfors took over as the Minister of Finance, he brought Myrdal in and that became the basis for the formulation of the Swedish crisis program of 1933. And essentially what it was, wasn't it what we would now call Keynesianism, right? We're gonna make a bunch of, it's not sheer, 
spending, we're going to make a bunch of productive investments, right? We're going to build schools, we're going to build highways, we're going to build hospitals, we'll put people to work, we'll put money in their pockets, and these will be long-term investments that continue to pay off. And yes, we'll accrue debts, you know, yes, we'll go into deficit, and yes, we'll accrue interest, you know, interest-related obligations and whatever, but we'll more than pay them off. And then and then he became actually an important international figure for popularizing this because it did exactly what he said it would. And so he became, he published, you know, articles about it in the, and in, um, in social science journals in the U S for instance, in English saying, this is what we did. It worked, you know, try it. And remember this is well before Keynes who hadn't, who didn't yeah. publish, you know, his famous, most famous book until 1936. Um, and so, so the, so what I point out about that is that, you know, you had at this time, this curious thing, which is that you had center left social democratic parties in government and you had um, uh, you had ministers of finance or chancellors of the exchequer in the British case who were who were actually highly conservative in terms of their fiscal orthodoxies. And, and they were Mark, you know, they were sometimes Marxist, usually, you know, more only really only the German case where they openly Marxist, they were more kind of revisionist social democrat than the other cases. Um, but their training was actually the way that they became recognized as economists was because they were journalists. They none of them had training, any kind of formal training in economics, which wasn't really a formal autonomous profession. The way we think of it now, and they adhered to gold standard orthodoxy. Right? It just it didn't it didn't really occur to them that you could do otherwise. So it wasn't really until the the Swedish Social Democrats, on the basis of this kind of new this new intellectual foundation, which was a new kind of younger generation economics that was highly statistical in its reasoning, um, that had things like a concept of GDP and you know national income statistics and things like that. Who could make these arguments on a on a sort of on the basis of a statistical logic that simply wasn't at the disposal of the the Marxian or social democratic sort of journalist intellectuals that held the positions that they would come to hold, you know, in the 1920s. Um, and so, so the argument that I make is that you know you had this this wasn't just like a sort of shift in ideology or an embrace of of revisionist social democracy as opposed to dogmatic Marxism or whatever. It was a whole generational changeover where you had people informing economic policy who had a whole different, um, who had very different training, who had very different credentials, who had this entirely different way of thinking about the world. Um, and that became sort of popularized as Keynesianism when Keynes came along. But there's a famous story in the history of economics about him going and presenting his thinking to the Stockholm School and them, you know, basically rolling their eyes and saying, you know, congratulations. <laughs> We've been doing this for a while. Well, welcome to the club. Yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, I, I've heard that one. That's a, it's, it's good. Cause yeah, obviously his name got attached to this, but uh, yeah, like you said, in some ways just sort of uh, reiterating what had already, already been tried. And I mean, you obviously have like the, the new deal in the U S like is sort of seen as like the start of Keynesianism, but as you said, predates Keynes's, um, the general theory by, you know, several years there. So it's like, you know, he, he gets a lot of the, the credit, obviously, but people were wanting to try out these kind of policies, realizing that we couldn't just have this sort of austerian uh, gold standard ideology anymore. And this is sort of like Polanyi's famous, you know, great transformation era, right? Right. Um, but you, you you mentioned, right? So, I mean, there's, there's a, almost like a contradiction here. Um, which is that the adoption of, you know, sort of proto-Keynesian or Keynesian, like deficit spending, investment, and so on, gives these left parties more room for maneuver in terms of policy. So in that mm -hmm. sense, it's, it's almost like a shift to the left in terms of like actual existing policies, yet it moves them away from sort of core Marxist thinking 
into a kind of reliance on then what becomes, especially post-war, a very professionalized economic discipline and, and ties them very closely to the kind of prestige of, of some of those fields of, of economists that kind of double as party functionaries and, and academics. And so, and this, this, this shift really is kind of key in the later argument about the kind of neoliberal transformation is because it's like they, they open themselves up to this, you know, deficit spending, which opens up policy space. And yet they tie themselves kind of to the whims a bit of what happens internal to the economics profession. And so could you say a little more about this, this kind of this binding and what they gained and what they lost by tying themselves to economics? Right. Yeah, so this is what I call in the book, I call it interdependence, right? That, that there's this, there's a whole new sort of um, institutional architecture of, of social democratic politics in Europe and democratic politics or sort of New Deal democratic politics in the US. And, and that is that the sort of leading factions of, the, of these parties have um, married themselves very closely to the dominant orthodoxies of an academic profession. Right. And um, and there are historical reasons for why that happens. And I and I do. It's especially clear in the American case that one of that there's actually a, a feedback effect where insofar as these kinds of rec- like Keynesian kind of recommendations are successful in the 30s, um, that feeds back into the economics profession such that, for instance, Keynesians who never would have gotten tenured at Harvard suddenly become, you know, tenured dominant figures. And so. So there's this thing that happens, which is that in the sort of marriage of a, a specifically Keynesian economics and central left politics, that that they kind of they kind of make they help to make Keynesian economics and orthodoxy. So so that works well for them for a while. And in, in the book, I argue, um, and this doesn't deviate from what other people observed about 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 the 60s, that the, the early 60s, especially is sort of the peak period, right, of this sort of marriage of of center-left politics and Keynesian economics. Um, but you know what they've done, and this is again where the sort of, sort of sociological perspective comes in, um, comes into my thinking, is they've married themselves to what, to what I would call a cultural field, right? A, a academic discipline that has its own internal sort of rules and operates according to prestige competitions. Right. And so if you are a new center-left government coming into power, you're not going to take the obscure economist with the radical out of the mainstream theories from the university of whatever that, you know, people haven't heard of, you're going to take, you you want prestigious economists, right? You want the ones who are the representatives of sort of mainstream thinking and, you know, and scientific orthodoxies. And so there's a, there's a risk in that, right? Which is that politics is political, right? And, and, and economics or any kind of discipline that kind of grounds its claims in science, its claim to prestige is, is in the claim to objectivity, right? It's in the claim to reason and objectivity. The two logics do not get along, right? Ultimately, right? You cannot be objective and also do things according to the priorities of partisan interests, right? Um, and so there's a there's a sort of contradiction, I argue, that kind of gets built into this, this interdependent relationship, right? Which is that which is that um, social democratic policies, I mean, and if, if you read sort of rhetoric right in the 60s, this is sometimes characterized as sort of the end of ideology as when political language becomes super technocratic, but that technocratic language is a Keynesian language, right? It's about supply and demand and wages and prices and, right? Um, and about sort of managing the economy, right? Um, understood as a sort of mechanical thing, right? Um, 
And so the um, Kennedy era, best and the brightest kind of exactly, types, right? Yeah. Exactly, right. So there's a broader thing going on there, which is not which is not just about economics. It's about sort of rise of you know the social sciences and maybe in general as sort of basis of politics. But anyway, so that's a broader context. But what I argue is that so then what you get right is you get this sort of you, you get these figures, um, and I try to trace this um, across all four cases. You get these really prominent figures who are closely tied to parties. Right, who are who are either um, themselves who are who are economists who who occupy powerful positions in parties, such they become ministers of finance, or they're politicians themselves, but they somehow have this public recognition as economists, right? So in the U.S. case, the head of the Council of Economic Advisors under Kennedy, Walter Heller, right? He's obviously a sort of New Deal Democrat. That's his; those are his partisan investments, but he's recognized as a public intellectual. Right. It's very similar in the German case to Carl Schiller, who who somehow, even though he is deeply connected with the German Social Democrat Party, Democratic Party, has this sort of public weight as an economist, as an intellectual understood to be doing things, not because he's partisan, but because of his sort of training. Right. His his expertise. And so what that does, what I what you can see happening, especially with the rise of the Reagan years and the Thatcher years with coal in Germany is this sort of opposition and center-right parties to Keynesian economists, a recognition that there's a that there's a weakness, right? That they have that they that kind of economics basically is on the side of the center left. Now I think in the German case this is much less the case because Keynesian economics was never really a dominant orthodoxy in the same way. Right. I was going to ask you about that because right. you have in the U.S. you know have kind of Nixon famously saying we're all Keynesians now, and there was no uh, CDU admission of of that. Right, Germany have, having its own right. sort of uh, its own kind of brand of of neoliberalism, ordo liberalism. I mean, it's a, it's a crude way to put it, but it's the, right. the easiest way to think about it, which was very very influential um, mm-hmm. with the with the CDU in particular throughout. Uh, the post-war period. And, you know, obviously also worth mentioning that uh, this, this sort of period you mentioned, right, where the, the center left seems ascendant, um, maybe in, in the US, for example, it, it's not actually the case based on who's in the chancellery in Germany, not having uh, Willy Brandt um, enter, you know, really until like late 60s, early 70s. And right. you have, you know, this the series of uh, you have Brandt and then, and then Schmidt um, of the SPD and then back to Kohl mm-hmm. in the early 80s. And so, you know, it's, the the German example I think is interesting because it it sort of follows this broad logic, but but not quite. Like there really yeah. isn't a German Thatcher or a German Reagan. Like you have you have coal a bit, but it's it's far less radical of shifts. Mm-hmm. And I think Absolutely. this makes the story of the neoliberalization of the SPD very interesting because mm-hmm. you have this you have this kind of very well rehearsed story, um, especially in the the Anglophone countries. Where there's kind of the the neoliberal shift, you have the, the stagflation era, you have the discrediting of you know the breakdown of the Phillips curve, the the discrediting of Keynesianism, you have this rightward shift in the economics profession, and then you have these like the neoliberal revolutions of, of Reagan and Thatcher, and then mm-hmm. you have uh, what's often seen as kind of the the center left parties then sort of chasing the right. Um, you take issue with that a bit, um, but in the interest mm-hmm. of time, I think it might be it might be interesting to to kind of dwell on the the German case because mm-hmm. it is unique to this very well-known story, and yet you still have Schroeder kind of fitting the Blair-Clinton narrative without the preceding neoliberal shock. And so right. what goes on in Germany throughout the 70s and 80s that kind of that kind of lead us, obviously, to then uh, Schroeder in the in the late 90s and early 2000s and the, the Agenda 2010 kind of kind of era? So like, how do we how do we get there in Germany? 
Right. Well, I mean, I would take that story back a little bit earlier. I mean, you know, Germany is an exceptional case for the whole time period, right? For obvious reasons. So, so one thing that I say or that I try to trace is that the, the, in the German case is the way in which the processes that gave rise to this sort of strong Keynesian social democratic or center left political alliance are to say the least disrupted right in the German case. So a lot of, a lot of figures um, who, who might've become the sort of Walter Hellers, right. Of, of Germany leave um, during, you know, during under Nazi rule. Um, and so some of the Keynesian economists, for instance, become very influential in American politics are German emigres, right. Who, um, right. Who leave um, in the 1930s. And then I also trace processes where other, where other, German economists who potentially would have become these kinds of figures, they turn to accounting, right? Or something that's sort of apolitical, right? That's that's maybe won't get them in trouble. And um, you know, and some of them are persecuted. And so, so there's a so there's so there's that factor in the case. There's the special role of inflation and hyperinflation in German political history and economic history that gives rise to a uniquely powerful central bank. Right, which is which is sort of it's an independent central bank in a time of non-independent central banks, um, and and that's really important. And the other thing that's special about the German case is the role of European integration. Yeah. Um, you know, the fact that it joins the eurozone, not just that, but it's a leading figure in the construction of the eurozone. You know, means that for this whole time period, I mean, Germany is exceptional in many ways. Right. So all of that acknowledged. So in 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 the making of the third ways in the in the German case. You know, one of the things that I that I that I honestly I'm 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 not satisfied with exactly you know how well I pin this down, but the role of European integration and the way in which the construction of the euro um, kind of Europeanized uh, a sort of uh, a certain sort of um, market orthodoxy, I think, plays a really special role in German politics. One thing that's similar to what you see in other countries in terms of the sort of you're right, you know, coal is not Thatcher, right, is not Reagan, but you do see a similar sort of purging in the government of Keynesian economists in, in, the, in the 80s. And um, you see a, a related sort of politicization of economics um, in the same period. Well, so for instance, I, 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 I refer to other research that kind of tracks the ways in which the, the voting patterns of the the members of um, the German Council of Experts starts start kind of diverging, right? Where it becomes very obvious that the union endorsed member um, is is no longer in agreement with the other members of the council, um, and so there is there are kind of markers of this fracturing of economics in the eighties in the German case that that are parallel to the other cases, um, and then you know the other thing is is and this is true in the U.S. and in the U.K. is a fracturing within the SPD or in the Labour Party or in the Democratic Party um, as they're kind of in the shadow of conservative rule of conservative governments, right? So there's kind of a fracturing on both sides of this interdependence, right? Which is certainly weaker in the German case and shorter lived in the first place because Keynesianism is not an orthodoxy. And, and then, you know, so the, the, the story then is, so part of the story then in all cases gets into sort of fractures within the social, within social democratic parties or. This being a, a bit the, the Zeheimer Kreis, for example, which is like yeah. somewhat analogous to the, the DLC and the, 
in the um, the, Demo the U.S. Democratic context, right? right? The sort of, like, sort of right-wing group within the sort of center-left right. party. Right. Positioning themselves as neither right nor left, right? Positioning themselves as sort of progressive, as people who are grounded in reality, you know, and- Above the ideology and pragmatic. And yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> And and so that pragmatism off was that same thing, and you know which which you know Schroeder famously announces this in his in his third way state with Tony Blair in 1998 of, you know basically we're gonna we're gonna work with markets instead of against them. We're not gonna reverse the conservative and deregulatory policies of the 80s, um, but but we believe in sort of correcting for markets after the fact, right? We don't want to be a market society, right? Market right. economy and not market society. So. So that comes out the same. The other thing that I think is important in all of the cases is this sort of import, export, transatlantic exchange process between party elites. So one of the stories that I did some interviewing um, for the for the sort of you know last phase of the analysis of the book of the third way period, and one of the things that folks will tell you who are kind of connected to third way leadership is they were trying to break with the parties, right? And, and so they, they wanted to be able to kind of break with what they saw as sort of the dinosaur politics of, of you know, the socialist international and stuff like that. And, and they construct this sort of international network, right, of, of third way political leaders. And this is well-documented in other, you know, other work as well, the way in which Schroeder is kind of is kind of incorporated into that network. And so, you know, his third way language or, you know, the new middle language doesn't sound like Tony Blair coincidentally, right? It sounds that way because it's formulated yeah. in this sort of transnational exchange. So both, a, I mean, you really tell it, it's interesting because it's both a, a, a struggle of like internal institutional factional fighting and transnational networks, right? So it's right. like, I mean, it's a, there's like two two different things happening here. One which seems very you know global and, and internationalized, and the other which is like this these little infighting, these little figures, and like who beats who for you know some position. And so it's the the right. interaction between those. I think it seems particularly crucial at this point in time. Right, right, and I think it's it's very important because you know what it, what is from their perspective a sort of a factional dispute. It has massive consequences in terms of the future of the parties and. And and the I think the, the story I can tell this in the most detailed ways in the American case, right, where the victory of the New Democrats was very much the defeat of um, of congressional Democrats, representatives of of union districts, of blue collar um, communities, representatives, and also the representatives. Uh, this is, gets into some of my work right now that. Of, of communities that were that were kind of associated with what, what was then called new politics, right? Feminism, civil rights, right? And so, you know, the one of the hallmark moves of the, Dem the new Democrats was to cut out Jesse Jackson and the Rainbow Coalition, right? Yeah. Um, so it was both kind of a desertion of, of elected representatives who were elected on the basis of being representatives of working class communities, right? And but also um also you know, women and people of color and, you know, so all of the all of the um, the groups associated with the civil rights movements of the 60s. Um, and, and so this factional break inside the party, it's sort of, you know, insofar as Schroeder, you know, emerges sort of dominant over La Fontaine, right, or or the new Democrats in the American case emerge as dominant over the, you know, the the old Right, the old liberal, the, the New Dealers, right? basically. Right? right. Yeah. Then that essentially, you know, and it, I think you can argue that there's sort of a parallel. It's sort of like 
severs them from their grounding in a variety of different constituencies, right? And then, and so, and so in the American case, the, the victory of the, of, the, of the new Democrats in the White House coincides with the collapse of Democrats in Congress, right? And, and, and they claimed, and that that was because the, the Clinton administration hadn't, hadn't become centrist enough, right? That it was because they, they focused on healthcare instead of balancing the budget. And, you know, and so, but, but, you know, there are, there, you, there's also pretty good evidence that a lot of what that cratering of collapse, I mean, first of all, it had to do with just what you always expect in midterms elections after a presidential election, the next midterm elections, Congress generally flips to the other party. So it's perfectly like sort of predictable in that sense. But the other thing that happened that was that was that Clinton passed NAFTA. He signed NAFTA and he signed it in a way that explicitly and clearly broke with promises he had made to organize labor. Right. Yeah. It, it incorporated the concerns of environmental movements, but it completely dismissed the concerns of um, of organized labor. And that was very difficult for congressional Democrats to, you know, they, they couldn't campaign on that. They and can't it's still, I mean, that. really, the, de- the deindustrialization that results, NAFTA obviously being the North American Free Trade Agreement, you know, liberalizing right. trade and, and, you know, by a lot of studies, you know, causing a lot of damages to um, industrial communities in the U.S. And I think really a problem that the Democrats are still grappling with today, um, it was sort of an, an analogous thing, you know, with like, say, TTIP and Obama, where they still like have the presidential level leadership pers- uh, pursuing liberalization and the sort of some of the remaining core union base of the party opposing it. Um, and mm-hmm. and you really you kind of have an analogous situation in Europe, or at least at least partially analogous. And this ties into the, the kind of interactions between the third way and globalization. And um, with, of course, there's not not exactly the uh, a NAFTA in Europe, but the European Union itself is really a, a in many ways a liberalizing project. Mm-hmm. And it, it ties into what you were saying earlier about the the weird bind that center left parties have found themselves in Europe. Because outright opposition to the EU is is basically coded as right wing, and so they don't want to do that, especially having some, uh, in addition to the working class base, a, a significant amount of more urban middle class people for whom Europe is a cosmopolitan project they want to be a part of, and yet the requirements of European Union membership, especially the monetary union, which comes later, um, uh, demand a kind of betrayal of what the working class base would like, and you know you you write in this. Um, this piece I mentioned, um, in continental Europe, third wayers sometimes conflated market demands with the exigencies of European integration, which, having originated as a pacification project aiming to construct a community of law, became increasingly about market making, such as trade liberalization, free movement of workers, labor market reform, and monetary integration. This is from the mid-1980s onward. But no matter the euphemism, the basic logic was the same. Democratic constituencies would have to adapt to the demands of the market, not vice versa. And it, that that phrasing, I think, is really nice. And, and what I understand as a, as a real core argument of, of the piece is that instead of seeing working class and disadvantaged communities as the constituents of social democratic parties, the market them itself becomes a constituency and something and the, you, you care for the market and and. Only, good things can only follow from how well we treat the market. We can't directly try to help the people that vote for us. Right. Yeah. And it is this really strange. And honestly, as I was writing the book, it came as sort of a revelation to me. Like the market is there. Maybe maybe this is just me being slow, but the market is their constituency. You know, they were 
you know, so if you if you think of the market as, as a thing, however sort of constructed and contentious that thing is, right? They started they started worrying about what made markets happy, what was in the interests of markets, you know, and and the idea, and I do think, I don't have good reason if I don't think they're being um. Uh, you know, I have no reason to think they were being insincere in this. The idea was that, oh, if we make markets happy, we make our constituents happy, right? But in any kind of historical perspective, that starts to appear absurd. You know, markets, by definition, generate inequality. Otherwise, they are not markets. And that is hard to reconcile, right, with social democratic politics. The other thing that I point out, and this goes back to the thing I was saying at the beginning about, like, do you think about parties as things that are sort of pushed around, right, by external forces, is that, the way that way of seeing was put into practice when social democratic governments or third way governments were in power was by accelerating those forces, right? So the, the big moves in capital liberalization, right, happen under third way auspices. The first thing that New Labour does when it comes into power is it makes the Bank of England independent, which completely sort of reverses what what Labour Party had been, you know, Labour Party was all about trying to tame the power, not just the Bank of England, but the Treasury and the general of finance, right, in, in English politics and British politics. And so, um, so there's this sort of like, there's this way in which this belief helps, it also sort of, it makes it real, right? Once they're in power, you know, insofar as on the basis of that belief, they liberalize things in a way that's going to make markets happy. They bring those all powerful markets and specifically financial markets into existence. Effectively tying their own hands, saying there's no alternative to globalization. Exactly. So let's globalize further to really make it so there's no alternative. Exactly. Yeah. And so there's this thing, which is like, they're sort of, you know, they're half right. They are responding to, to realities that they understand to be unavoidable, unavoidable realities. But because they've they've kind of bought into this gospel that they are unavoidable realities, they also accelerate the process, right? And and they do that in ways that and and they keep and and their rationale is constantly well well we've won and so and these policies are popular, you know. So is labor market reform popular? Yes, it is. Does labor market reform mean hearts, right? Well, it's not clear people really voted for that, or at least it certainly kicked up a lot of dissent once they pushed it through. You yeah, know, this being um, alluding to, of course, the the hot sphere reforms, which is actually what we we did our first episode on as a podcast. I think probably most people listening to this will will have listened to that one already. Um, but if not, go back. Spassbaum is the number one, um, and yeah, we get into it and like the, the the really like the, the huge amount of dissatisfaction um, with these liberalizing labor market reforms, which. Did a number of things, but especially getting rid of like long term unemployment and putting people on the sort of getting kind of a, a pittance really after a year or so um, and, and really like impoverishing a lot of a lot of uh, Germans who who became unemployed. And, you know, that that causing a huge split, obviously, um, really the, the modern party, Die Linke, being formed out of that with um, finance minister LaFontaine resigning um, and helping then found Die Linke a few years later. Um, of course, has now resigned from Die Linke itself, uh, <laughs> which has uh, resulted in some uh, some electoral catastrophe for the party again. So not 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 content with one dr dramatic uh, resignation in his career, had to had to do another one right at the end. So, um, right, no, 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 a lot of people not too happy about that one. But right. yeah, so yeah, and so that's and so there's one more thing about that 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 I should highlight, which is that you know you what you see this is especially striking the Swedish case, you see these sort of lifetime social democratic politicians, 
right, who who would have stayed in uh, in their position. I mean, the Swedish case, the Social Democratic Party was always in government. And so if you were a Swedish, if you're a Social Democratic, you know, finance minister, then you would be in there for a very long time. But what you start seeing um, as you get into the third wave period is high turnover and volatility in that position. And you actually see a sort of decline of reliance on economists and a turn to consultants, right, political consultants who who, you know, what do you, what do you do when you're representing the interests of markets instead of the interests of constituents? Well, you pull in people who can spin on popular messages, right? And eke out wins in a context of decline of growing voter disaffection and alienation, right? Declining turnout and participation in the first place, which means that your margins are getting narrower and narrower because you're trying to only appeal to the, you know, the relatively small numbers of people who are still participating at all. Right. And, and so there's and you can you can see this kind of. And so what you see then are also these new sort of career pathways that start tracking out of the Social Democratic Party into like international consulting or political consulting or, you know, so so there's this whole sort of there's this there's this sort of multiple fractures. Right. That emerges in this period. Right. That that is the so-called, you know, return of social democracy. Right. It's, right. it's like another it's sort of like another manifestation of this idea of like bending to reality rather than trying to create reality. Right. It's like you you have to bend to economic reality by globalizing finance and, and trade. Um, you also have to bend to political reality by just doing polling and focus groups and then doing what the people want. And, you know, may, maybe trying to spin your message a little bit to, to suit what is the pre-existing reality rather than this approach that, that you talk about at the start with a lot of these parties, which is, no, let's actively shape how our constituents see their interests in this world, right? right? And then just assuming that they're now set in stone and all we can do is kind of tinker around the margins within those pre-existing constraints. And so it's, it's, right. it's a, it's a, it's like this, this lack of ambition really manifests itself in, you know, the rhetorical, economic and, and political dimensions. Right. Right. And, and it's, it's something that, that you have to, you know, you'd have to think, you know, it's one thing for the sort of first generation folks voting for third wave, third wave, you know, parties and leadership in the late nineties to kind of buy those promises. Right. It's another thing after three or four generations, right. Of downward mobility and, and increasing insecurity, you know, at a certain point you you've broken that relationship. Right. You are not trustworthy anymore. You're perceived as as self-interested elites who are just making arguments in order to win office and hold on to it. Right. And, you know, and, and that that is, you know, those elements are elements of uh, part of the definition of populist politics. You yeah. know, that's, you know, this this resentment of elites, you know, this this deep distrust of elites. And I certainly wouldn't that that is not something to put entirely at the feet of, you know, third wave politics. There's lots more going on there. But, you know, the argument that I make in the book, and this is also one of its motivations, was this worry that center left politics in the sense of a meaningful politics that that speaks for people who otherwise lack the resources to advocate for themselves and their own interests. Right. And not just I don't not just speaking here in terms of wealth I'm speaking in terms of time, in terms of language. One of the most remarkable things about the third wave period is like just the parameters of sort of acceptable political language becomes exceedingly narrow. Right. There are lots of things you just cannot say right and left anymore. Right. And in, in that context, you you know, what what center left politics is supposed to do is is bridge you know, is bridge democratic politics, political access, political power with people who otherwise don't have the resources, 
right? To, to, you know, they're not wealthy. They don't have tons of free time. They speak colloquial local languages They're you know, and, you know, and they, they stopped doing that right in the, in the nineties. And so, like I said, I, I'm, I'm not placing like, you know, the rise of right-wing populism squarely at the feet of the third ways, but, but I do think they created this vacuum, right? Yeah. They, they occupy this really important location in democratic politics and, through a series of processes that I that that you know that some of that we we talked about that I think are complex, but that I don't think I don't think they were just um, pinballs being pushed around. Yeah, you know? I mean, it's I like if one did some pushing, you know, right? It's like if one if one party speaks for the wealthy and the other then starts just speaking for markets in the abstract, like you said, it opens up a vacuum for someone to speak for the disadvantaged, and and we're finding that 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 way of speaking often is like a, a basically demagogic uh, populist, often you know xenophobic and and racist attitude. And yeah, you know, there's not you know, not a one to one correlation here, but it, it is hard to see the the rise of like the AFD, for example, uh, without the context of the hot sphere reforms. You know, I, I think I think you can yeah. you can at least draw a, a, a faint line between the two um, and, and, and probably even a, even a more direct one in a lot of ways. And, you know, but the, the big sort of like curveball here, right, is is that you know, the, the story is like um, there's this, like, right, like the neoliberalization um, as we see it today, even though, as, as you point out, maybe the like Schroeder and so on, they're not saying, you know, hi, I'm a neoliberal. They're saying, mm-hmm. oh, we're, we're modernizing. This is, this is always the language of like uh, obeying these forces and, and modernizing the labor market so we can compete in the 21st century economy and so on. Um, but, you know, the basic story is they, they do these neoliberal reforms that breaks the ties with the traditional working class communities that had formed their base. And so you have really declining uh, voter turnout overall, especially declining electoral fortunes of these parties. However, you know, now we have in the in the election from last year, you know, the SPD won and they're, they're still actually polling pretty well in a number of states have succeeded in, in some state elections and doesn't look like they're, you know, really, really collapsing um, the way maybe like Biden's poll numbers are. And so I'd, I'd be curious, like, what do you have any thoughts about the state of German politics today and how the sort of like lingering shadow of Agenda 2010 in the third way and, and how that affects it? I mean, I, I remember watching there was a documentary about like Kevin Kunit, the, uh, you know, the sort of who's the rising young star of like the left of the SPD. And they're at this party conference and they they vote internally to say, you know, we're going to get rid of Hatzfiya. And so, and they say, uh, trauma English for by, uh, 15 years of trauma is finally over. And it's, it's the trauma that their party did. Like they're not overturning a hated policy of a different party. They're like, to me, they're like stuck in this cycle of the, the, the limits of progress are, you know, maybe they're not neoliberalization anymore isn't what they're going for, but the limits of what they can conceive of is undoing the harm they did right. last time they were in power. And I just... It, it feels right. still very constrained, even though it right. may not be moving exactly towards the right anymore. So I'd just be curious right. what you might think of that today in context. Yeah, I mean, you see you see the same thing, like, you know, for some reason, you know, democratic political elites, they can't think of anything that has that doesn't have the term deal in it or, you know, yeah. like, <laughs> it's like some, right? You know, yeah, they just yeah. like anything that goes beyond New Deal area and a New Deal era FDR. It's a right? New Deal for this or a Marshall Plan for that. You know, like you can't have anything new. Like, yeah. like at least come with a new phrase. Um, yeah. So so let me say first, you know, some things have happened since 20, 
16. And so I've become a little obsessed with American politics. And also since 2020, I've not been able to travel. Um, and so I don't feel like I have my sort of ear to the ground, you know, in terms of, of, of politics in, in anywhere in Europe, really. So, but, but I will say this, you know, it seems to me that, and this is, I'm going to come back to the rise of political consultants here. It seems to me that, you know, the, the whole sort of organizational basis of maybe mainstream parties in general, and but maybe especially social democratic parties have changed, right? And so the way that you rise to stardom now inside those networks is heavily influenced by, by um, your appeal to your sort of immediate network of party elites, right? Not just party members maybe, but also the consultants, are you using the right language? Are you presentable in the right way? Um, and and they and they might have followings that they're able to kind of activate, you know, but but correct me if I'm wrong, but my impression is that the German Social Democratic Party sort of returned. It's like you say, it's sort of like uh, we're not going to do what we have been doing, but it's not on the basis of a broad-based new vision, grounded, well grounded in in grassroots constituencies and social movements. That just that is not my impression. It seems to me to be the same kind of you know in different institutions, different history, different language, different culture, but a similar thing to what you see in democratic circles here, which is this sort of I think of it now as like the the parties have sort of built this moat, you know, around themselves, or you know, yeah. where they're surrounded by these other sort of political professionals and political elites and. And um, and especially in D.C., you know, it's filled with sort of really smart, you know, data savvy, you know, hotshot young people who can, you know, go do all kinds of analysis and are on top of all of the sort of online campaigning and digital, right, digital mobilization stuff. But that is a far cry from a cultural project deeply grounded in in what you might call ethnographic knowledge of people's everyday lives, right, where 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 they're developing a language on the basis of people's experiences, where they're helping people articulate, right, what it is that is making them unhappy, right, and how they should interpret the world and, and what they think would make it better. They're not doing that. There's no right. no no coherent vision, right? I mean, it's and even and and they're I mean, you say building a moat. I mean, they've really like like box themselves in, not just in this way of, of, of their sources of expertise and, and the people working there, but in the German case, like literally constitutionally box themselves in with the debt break, that which they right. helped implement when they were partners in government during the, the Merkel years. Um, right. And so, yeah, it's, it's like, and, and some of the proposals, I mean, even the, the sort of more like radical proposals from some economists like a, a affiliated with the SPD are not, okay, we need to summon this like massive political energy to get rid of the debt break. It's well, no, that's set in stone now. So let's, uh, let's tinker around the rules for how we can get some more investment within that context. Or let's uh, let's not call it Hatsfi anymore and maybe make it not so punitive. But like the basic logic is still there. And so it's like it it still feels like this idea of of external constraints that you outlined the, the development of with this third way thinking that there's this sort of rather than we're going to grasp uh, sort of we're going to like seize the initiative. We're going to shape political reality. We're going to campaign for something by creating a vision and getting people on board with that vision. It still feels like it's a, it's a reactive politics. It's, 
saying these are the forces out there. The best we can do is kind of soften them or not be as mean as the CDU or something. And it, it's right. like I said, I think there's a lot of parallels, right, with the um, right. with the U.S. case. You know, it's it's like, well, you know, you can't expect that much from us. We'll do a couple nice things. But at the end of the day, we're just not as mean as the other guys. Right. Yeah. And and it's like they it, it's like there's also this idea that somehow if they just found a combination of the right policy and the right language, right? If they just found this magical combination of like, it's as if like politics or government is like a, it's a keyboard in front of them. And if they just press the right button, you know, and, and they, and they name the button with the right label, then, yeah. then somehow that solves the problem. And, and I really think part of that is driven by, and this goes back to that sort of moat metaphor um, of, you know, so success for them is defined by electoral success. Well, we won the election, so that's success, right? And but, but the problem is that the kind of politics that was the basis for an enduring um, and, and in my opinion, one of the greatest sort of achievements in, in political history and enduring social democratic politics that could kind of counterbalance, right, that for a while at least, you know, provided an avenue for represent for meaningful representation, right? That was a, that ha they had to play the long game, and they had to do that by investing in on the ground cultural, social, you know, kinds of activities, right? In the in the U.S., like there's, it, it's not surprising that that some of the most politically active people in the U.S. One of the most politically active communities is the Black community. It has a lot to do with the Black church. You know, and it's these cultural institutions, right? And it's that kind of investment. And so the the trick is, right, there is so much money in politics, not as much in Germany as here. Here, it's just like eye-watering, right? Yeah. But there's so much money in politics. And that money is invested in the next election, right? And formulating the right policies to enact in the next government, right? But that is not the basis of an enduring movement. That's not, you know, basis for the construction of a new kind of social democratic or, or sort of, you know, representative kind of democracy. That would require not worrying so much about the next election. It would require worrying about playing the long game, right? Building require, a base and rebuilding yeah, these institutions it, in a lot of cases. Yeah, Right. It would require, like in the American case, it would require that all those smart and savvy folks leave the beltway, right? Yeah. <laughs> Exit, right? The, the DC area, right? And and that's not, I mean, there are all kinds of practical reasons why that doesn't happen. One is that, you know, people in their 20s need to make a living, right? And it's hard to know how to make a living doing that. There's all kinds of things that stand in the way of that. But what worries me is that is that is that there's it seems like there's there's sort of amnesia in social democratic politics right now on both sides of the Atlantic. Not well in sort of democratic politics, not the DSA. I think actually the DSA here probably has a lot of things right, which is like, how do you build a political movement, right? Do you build it by treating government as a keyboard and you just label the keys the right thing and then press them and then suddenly, you know, everything is better, right? Or or, or do you ground yourself in the communities that you want to represent and you listen to them instead of talking at them? Yeah, I think for four that you do that, you have to know which communities you want to represent, and it's it's right. not clear that that some of these parties um, really do that. Um, I mean, that's no. that's not even confined to just just the SPD. I mean, you have like Die Linke, which sort of purported to be you know the the more the the, the true party of the workers. You know, does terribly with workers. I mean, I, I, I right. support a lot of their policies, but like it's it's a party of a lot of you know old 
Easterners and, and, and academics. Like, um, it's not, uh, it, it's not really doing the job either. So it's like, no one's really found the, the magic solution to rebuild that. And I think it, it ties into exactly what you were saying, which is that getting working class support isn't a matter of, let's press this button with this policy that workers will like, and then they'll mm-hmm. automatically come. It's like, you need to have that more longstanding, those longstanding ties and institutions. You saw this, I think, perfectly in the, in the UK case with Corbyn, right? Where mm-hmm. it was like, okay, let's go back to the old school labor type policies when labor did really well. Um, and then we'll get our majority back. He got wiped out in the former red wall area, even though, you know, his policies would have helped the working class quite a bit, but those bonds were broken. And so mm-hmm. it, it, it no longer has any purchase. And I think, you know, you're, you're seeing something analogous in Germany today. And, and like you said, mm-hmm. maybe Olaf Scholz can win an election, but there's not going to really be a, a true social democratic program unless you go more towards that, that longer game that you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, the only, I, I think that, you know, the reason that social democratic parties and the sort of process of their construction made that investment was what I was saying at the beginning, which is if you can't seek office, (laughs) you turn to the cultural project. Right. So, um, so, you know, and, and that leads into something that, that deeply worries me, right. Is that, is that we're, is that, is that the solution to the sort of reconstruction of a, of a sort of truly representative politics that it has to go through some process of, of, of the, of, de-democratization essentially right where people you know where where kind of political actors political parties are are forced to to play the the long game yeah right i mean and, it's it's yeah. a bit ironic as you hear people on the left you know that sometimes people say that they like they bash like the book clubism of the left um and it's like mm-hmm. well you know it's you read the history of the spd like there was was quite a bit of that um, <laughs> it's not, yeah. not not necessarily well, and, a bad thing and it's part of the you know, like it, 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 this is one of the points I try to make in the book, the sort of, you know, socialist and social democratic intellectuals of the late 1800s, they weren't just like welcomed with open arms by workers as the natural, you know, as their natural representatives, they had to be persuaded, they had to argue with them, you know, <laughs> you know, they had, and, and yeah. you know, and it was, it was, it wasn't always an easy alliance, right? It was, it was sometimes a very oppositional alliance, right? Yeah. And I mean, it's the, the, the work of politics and, and convincing people. Um, and, you know, I, not a political consultant for the SPD, but I think, yeah, the, the, the things you outline here could, uh, could go a long way and, and really like trying to, trying to rebuild those ties and then and make, make the arguments, um, that your policies are the best rather than just sort of reflect what you think people already want. And, and I think, I mean, I think in the, in the interest of time, we should probably wrap it up on the, the main part of it there, but I really appreciate that. And it's really, it's really interesting to kind of place this stuff in, in a broader international context. Like I said, you know, we, we usually talk about Germany almost as like this, this isolated, uh, this isolated case, but seeing, you know, these really profound shifts that we're still living with the consequences of and seeing how that interacts with is shaped by and helps shape, um, other developments elsewhere, I think is really important. And, and before we, before we let you go though, I just want to say, is there anything, um, like current projects you're working on, um, that, that people should be aware of? I know you've uh, been doing some more recent work on the U.S. Democratic Party in particular. So if you just want to share a bit about that, that would be great. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, I always have several projects, but the main thing that I'm, that's, that's, that's focusing my attention at the moment is this period in the um, 1980s, what I was referencing earlier, that the that the making of the New Democrats, um, the way in which it, it first sort of was allied with and then ended up cutting out 
Jesse Jackson and civil rights leaders. And so, so I think I, there, whenever you write a book, there are things that you always think you could have done better. The book was 500 pages, so there was only so much I could put in there. But, um, but I think there's, um, and I haven't decided, you know, in, in all countries are unique I, and the role of race in American politics has a unique history, but, but I don't think it's the case that that means the U.S. is the only place where, where race and politics intersect. And so uh, what, w- one of the stories that I think is an interesting one that should be told is the way in which the, the Democratic Party's sort of internal networks in the, in the, maybe going back to the 1970s, but especially in the 1980s, the way that it sort of converged on this idea of, a, of the mainstream, of the mainstream voter in, in, if you think about it as an outsider, in exceedingly narrow terms, right? Where mm. the mainstream voter by definition, and you still see this, you saw it became a huge subject of debate after 2016, the way in which the, the mainstream voter became conflated with specifically a working or middle-class white man, right? Which if, if, you, if you think about it, just in terms of the demographics of the voting population in the US, this is an absurdity, the idea that that should be the mainstream, it's a minority population, you know, in, in, in sort of just basic demographic terms. But the definition of the mainstream voter in, in new democratic circles, it, it, it ended up kind of on the one hand, sort of assuming that people of color and women um, and, and any non-binary person would sort of naturally be a democratic voter, that somehow they were born into the world with like the Democrat gene, right? And that they would never be able to vote Republican on the one hand. On the other hand, that meant then the interests they had to really focus on representing was the interest of the mainstream voter. In addition to the market, they somehow decided those interests were the same. And who was the mainstream voter? The mainstream voter was a working class white man. And if if you look at it in, in historical terms, if you look at it now, what you see is um, that is precisely the demographic that, after the third way years, the, Dem- the Democratic Party lost in the most in the most dramatic fashion, and and you can see now in in its sort of confusion over well why aren't Spanish speaking voters voting for us, right? But they're they're people of color, right? Um, and and so there's this sort of there's a sort of twin logic about who the mainstream voter is on the first place, and this sort of like sort of demographic essentialism right, for everyone else that I think has been core to sort of thinking inside elite Democratic Party networks. And so so one of my projects is to kind of trace that and see how that happened. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's almost you almost have a similar thing in Germany where it's like this. There's like the I the Ige Metall, like, you know, factory worker who's like a white man, you know, also. But it's like, well, in reality, actually, those are often like immigrants and people of color, people like women, people of different backgrounds. And so I think you, you get an almost kind of essentialism of like, who is the the SPD voter exactly? Right. And a somewhat analogous shift has occurred. Um, but no, that that sounds really interesting. And yeah, we're, we're happy to, to link to anything and, and your Twitter in the in the show notes so people can stay uh, stay abreast of all that um, because, yeah, we, we do have a number of uh, U.S.-based listeners, and I would assume most of our German listeners, or a lot of them, are, are probably U.S. citizens anyway. So people will definitely be interested in that. Um, and yeah, I will obviously link to the the other work as well. Um, but yeah, that was uh, really fascinating. Uh, Stephanie Much, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much to Stephanie Mudge for that conversation. I think my biggest takeaway from that is that reading group 
truly is of outsized importance, you know? I, I couldn't I couldn't disagree. You know, as a as a reading group coordinator, uh, I do I definitely consider myself at the vanguard of the revolution. So I appreciate that, Michelle. Um, yeah, if you're in Berlin, and you <laughs> want to do a, if you want to do a reading group, uh, you can DM me on Twitter. Um, I don't, the the revolution will come from a bar in Neukölln. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Happy May Day and stay safe out there demonstrating. Don't get arrested, but you know, um, let's try to get the revolution going this time. Maybe maybe it'll happen. So uh, yeah, you Olaf. sound so flippant, but you know, Olaf, maybe I mean, just, I'm just—I don't know. I wonder if Olaf. Is, we've gotten some new listeners lately. I just—I'm just hope Olaf's listening, and like maybe he'll, uh, maybe he'll bring back the old SPD. We'll see what we can do. Olaf, come to reading group. Yeah, come on. <laughs> I bet—I bet he could. I bet he could. Uh, I wonder how fast he could drink a pint. You know, I wonder if he could hang. I think he most certainly cannot <laughs> hang. <laughs> but thanks for listening, everyone. Happy May Day. Thanks a lot. Happy May Day. And thanks so much to Professor Mudge for coming on the podcast. Really enjoyed it. See you next time, everyone. Cheers. Cheers.